I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you're listening in today. Hey, joining me during the second and third segments of today's program is Mr. Alistair McLeod. Many of you will recognize Alistair as a returning guest. He is the Director of Research at Gold Money. I'll be chatting with Alistair about his forecast for banking failures and trouble in the Eurozone. And I'll also get his forecast for what's the end game as far as all this money creation is concerned and what's the timeline. And you'll want to stay tuned for my conversation with Alistair. Uh, his, uh, his forecast is rather eye-opening, so certainly you'll want to stay tuned for that. Now, if you're not yet a user of the Your RLA app, Your Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app, I would like to invite you to go to the App Store. You can go to the Apple App Store or the Google App Store, and our app is now available both places. All you have to do is search for the Your RLA app at either the Apple or Google App Store and download the app for free. It will give you access to all of our educational resources uh, whenever you'd like to access them. So again, it's the Your RLA app. It's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A app. And uh, you can just search under your RLA at the App Store. Uh, also, uh, all those resources are available at our website, which is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Well, many of you are probably aware that uh, the Washington politicians, or at least enough of the Washington politicians, now seem to be behind another stimulus package. This time, a $1.9 trillion stimulus package, and they will likely get it passed in the next several weeks. Now, not surprisingly, support for the package and opposition to the package is falling, falling largely along party lines. Now, the proposed stimulus package, according to an article in U.S. News & World Report, would get another $1,400 stimulus check to many Americans. It would extend unemployment insurance. I believe it would add another $400 per week to unemployment benefits at the federal level. It would raise the minimum wage to $15 and include funding for food and housing assistance as well as child care and paid leave. Now, the effects of raising the minimum wage, the effects of extending unemployment insurance on the economy... Uh, are topics that we can really talk about another time. But let me just say that uh, in the big scheme of things, many analysts would say this is not a job creator. It is rather a job killer. And I would tend to agree with those analysts. Now, the fact that there's another stimulus package being proposed, and it seems like there will be another one behind that, is something that I talked about on this program as being imminent not that long ago. And I also commented the only way to fund another stimulus package was through more money creation. And that's exactly how this stimulus package, if it's passed, and it appears that it will be, will be funded. The only way to fund it is through more money creation. Now, I'd like to go on the record again today just stating that this just gets us a little further down the slippery slope of currency devaluation. It's also worth noting that the further down this slope we slide, the faster we move. 
Now, Rob Kirby, a past guest here on the program, used an interesting analogy to describe how inflation or hyperinflation progresses. Mr. Kirby said to visualize Yankee Stadium and then visualize that you're going to fill Yankee Stadium with water, beginning with an eyedropper, and you're going to put one drop of water in Yankee Stadium. You're going to wait one minute and you're going to double it. You're going to add two drops of water. You're going to wait another minute and you're going to double it and add four drops of water and so on. By doubling the number of drops that you're adding every minute, Yankee Stadium would be completely full of water in less than an hour. And you can do the math. It definitely is the case. Now, what's interesting is five minutes before Yankee Stadium was completely full of water, the bases would barely be covered. In other words, all the action happens in the last five minutes. Now, hyperinflations, as I'll discuss with my special guest today, Alistair McLeod, progressed the same way. In fact, if you go get the Your RLA app, you can take a look at the webinar that I conducted last week. Uh, that's something that happens every week, and you can get each week's educational webinar on the Your RLA app. But on that webinar, I shared the time frames of 52 hyperinflations that have occur occurred around the world since 1923. Now, interestingly, every 23 months for the last 100 years, there has been a hyperinflation that destroys a currency. And when you look at when the hyperinflation starts and when it ends, when there are currency issues, it confirms this progression. It confirms that, going back to the Yankee Stadium analogy, all the action happens in the last five minutes. Now, as far as the stimulus is concerned, even some progressive Keynesian economists are now voicing concerns over the size and scope of the proposed stimulus package. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Keynesian, a Keynesian economist, as I'll discuss with my guest today, Alistair McLeod, is an economist that subscribes to the school of thought put forth first by John Maynard Keynes that in times that the private sector spending lags, the government should step up and take up the slack. Well, even progressive Keynesian economists are now saying, wait a minute, maybe $1.9 trillion is too much. Larry Summers is a former economic advisor to Presidents Obama and Clinton, and he wrote in an op-ed piece published in the Washington Post that we're likely going to see inflation as a result of the money creation that will have to occur to fund this massive stimulus package. Here's a bit of what Mr. Summers wrote in the Washington Post. A comparison of the 2009 stimulus and what is now being proposed is instructive. In 2009, the gap between actual and estimated potential output was $80 billion a month and increasing. So economic output was increasing. The 2009 stimulus measures provided an incremental 30 to 40 billion a month during 2009, an amount equal to half of the shortfall. 
In contrast, recent Congressional, Congressional Budget Office estimates suggest that with the already enacted $900 billion package, which was passed at the end of the year, but without any new stimulus, the gap between actual and potential output will decline from $50 billion a month at the beginning of the year to $20 billion a month at its end. So in other words, output is declining rather than increasing. The proposed stimulus will total in the neighborhood of $150 billion a month, even before consideration of any follow-on measures. That's three times the size of the output shortfall. So when comparing this stimulus package to the one that was passed in 2009, this one's a lot bigger, and the economy is continuing, continuing to contract, where in 2009, the economy was beginning to grow. Now, Mr. Summers continues, in other words, whereas the Obama stimulus was about half as large as the output shortfall, the proposed Biden stimulus is three times as large as the projected shortfall. Relative to the size of the gap being addressed, it is six times as large. Now, there's a lot of technical language in there, but just suffice it to say that it proves the point that when you start down the money creation path, you have to create a lot more money as time goes on to get a diluted effect. In other words, it takes a lot more money to accomplish what you accomplished with a lot less money previously. Now, later in the piece, Mr. Summers notes that while he is in agreement that a stimulus package is a good idea and needs to be, quote, enacted in a way that neither threatens future inflation and financial stability, end quote. Now, I'm not a trained economist. However, you do not have to be a trained economist to figure out that money printing on this scale will mean that inflation will have to show up at some future point. It just has to happen. Now, if you're not familiar with the two-bucket approach, if you're not familiar with strategies that you can use to potentially protect yourself from what is lying ahead, then I would invite you to go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. I would invite you to go to the Google or Apple App Store and download the Your RLA app and access all of our educational materials. I would also encourage you to go to requestyourreport.com. If you go to requestyourreport.com, uh, I will be glad to send you a copy of my February special report that talks about the end of the currency cycle, talks about the credit cycle, and it talks about the fact that, in my view, the U.S. government peaked in the credit cycle last year, and now they're relying on money creation which will accelerate the currency cycle. So this, the report outlines this, gives you some strategies to consider for your situation, and you can get a free copy of the report by visiting requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is... Uh, to be candid, one of the uh, one of my favorite interviews, Mr. Alistair McLeod joins us. He is the head of research at Gold Money. You can learn more about Gold Money uh, at goldmoney.com. 
And Alistair is a prolific researcher and writer. Uh, there is a research link on the website. I'd encourage you to check that out and uh, read uh, some of Alistair's work. And uh, Alistair, welcome back to the program. That's my pleasure, Dennis. Well, let's talk a bit, Alistair, uh, just within the past uh, four or five days as we're recording this. Um, you wrote an article titled, The Rapidly Failing EU, referring to the European Union. Um, what do you mean by failing? Can you fill the listeners in? Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, as an institution, or rather as a commission, I suppose is the technical term, uh, it is entirely political. And its behavior um, over uh, Brexit I think has exposed its um, weaknesses, certainly from the economic point of view. I mean, Britain as a country uh, imports considerably more than it exports to the EU. And basically, the EU is trying to foul up the import-export relationship between it and us. So in other words, they're hell-bent on putting businesses out of businesses, sorry, businesses, <laughs> um, uh, making businesses bankrupt um, or reducing their, um, uh, their, their potential purely on political grounds. Why? Because they have got to establish that Britain is a loser from Brexit and therefore discourage any other member nation uh, from, you know, from considering leaving the EU. And that's really the basis of it. But we've seen um, a far greater problem uh, within the financial system, uh, and that is the Eurozone system, which is um, run by the ECB. It's a combination of the ECB and each nation in the Eurozone has its own national central bank. And linking the ECB with these banks is something called the target to settlement system. It's important to understand that this uh, settlement system which should be in balance. In other words, there should be no uh, significant um, debits and credits across the system between the national central banks. Um, we've got into a situation where over a trillion euros is now owned to, owed to the Bundesbank. Now, the problem with, with that is that the, the uh, uh, Bundesbank um, is owed this money, uh, and it has arisen basically from the national central banks, particularly those of the pigs, that's Portugal, um, Italy, um, uh, Greece, and Spain, um, who have been shoveling bad debts, or non-performing loans, as they're euphemistically called, into the system. Uh, the reason for this is actually quite simple. If you look at a country like Italy, where they had bad debts, which... Uh, came to something like 12 or 13 percent of uh, the um, uh, total uh, bank lending, uh, you could see that um, uh, the banks basically were bust. So the way, you, the, the way the national regulator dealt with this was to describe them as performing. They could then be used as collateral by the Banca d'Italia, the central bank, um, in order to lend money uh, uh, to, the, um, uh, to, the, to the commercial banks. So what we have is a situation where these bad debts have been basically pushed into the Eurozone system, and it is that that is giving rise to these horrific imbalances. So the whole situation um, was already very dangerous before uh, the EU was hit by this COVID problem. Now, with all the lockdowns going on, quite obviously, um, 
businesses round the uh, round the pigs um, are not only precarious, but most of them are going bust really quite rapidly. So um, you can see that COVID has actually happened at the worst time. It is going to expose the problem with all these debts in the uh, Target 2 system. And it's also going to expose the mounting debts, which are going to be or non-performing loans from the COVID uh, uh, situation, accumulating again in the commercial banks. So it is only a matter of time, and I think a very short amount matter of time, before the whole system blows up. Now, the consequence of that is that the uh, ECB has only got, it's got less than $10 billion of capital. It would have to be bailed out by the national central banks, and the national central banks would have to bail themselves out as well. So in other words, you, you get the ridiculous situation where the system will be printing money just to save itself. Now, clearly, this cannot really happen. And the effect of it will be to crash the whole system, crash the euro, and uh, the whole thing will have to be written off. So it looks to me like the only alternative for a country like Germany is to have effectively two Bundesbank balance sheets, one in euros, which is bust, and they push that over to um, uh, you know, the receivers to sort out, while they create a new Bundesbank whose balance sheet is in the new marks. So this is something that could happen very, very quickly. And it's something that, when it happens, could happen literally overnight. You might wake up one morning and say, oh, my goodness me, this is a changed world. So, and they haven't actually made things easy for themselves either, because you may have read that uh, the EU has filed up uh, on um, uh, getting uh, vaccines in uh, to the various nations. These nations uh, started off by being persuaded by the, uh, uh, um, the Brussels bureaucrats that the um, procurement of vaccines should be centralized on Brussels. They accepted that, and Brussels has actually screwed it up uh, enormously. And the result is that Spain has got no vaccines, France has got no vaccines, um, Italy has got no vaccines, Germany has no vaccines. And yet Britain here, uh, the people who escaped from the EU and should be punished for doing so, have uh, vaccinated fully 20% of its population. This is uh, an extremely embarrassing situation for the EU. It exposes its weaknesses. And I think that it's only a matter of time before it begins to undermine even further the economic situation in the pigs. Because remember, without vaccines the lockdowns are going to have to continue. So that basically, if you like, is the theme behind that article. So, Alistair, uh, as you were talking there and you mentioned that, you know, at some point the whole system blows up, um, my question to you would be, what does that look like? Are you talking banking failures, currency failures? Uh, what does that look like? It's a, that's a very good question. Um, it, will, it, it will be most noticeable uh, across the world in terms of banking failures, because the GSIBs, which are the global systemically important banks uh, in the Eurozone, are very highly geared. I mean, I show an example of a French bank, which is where the relationship between the market capitalization and the balance sheet is 100 times. I mean, that is quite, quite extraordinary. Wow. But the point behind that is that the market is pricing these banks as if they are, I mean, there's only option money 
um, if you like, it's like a call option on a bank. Um, 20%, if you like, of uh, uh, the, the capitalization being 20% of equity, you know, the equity on the balance sheet. It's like option money on the survival of the bank. The option money basically being valued um, on the basis that uh, with limited liability, you know, your downside is essentially um, to zero from 20%. And, you know, that's probably worth a punt. That's all the market is prepared to value that particular bank at. Now, the GSIBs are meant to be the best capitalized banks of the lot for the simple reason that they carry the systemic risk into other nations. And this was something that was set up by uh, the Bank of Inter International Settlements and the Basel Committee in the wake of uh, the, the Lehman crisis. So you can see that if you've got GSIBs in this situation, you have also got um, uh, smaller banks, which could easily be, or in fact, almost certainly be in a worse position. And uh, this is important because when I look at the U.S. banks, with the possible exception of Wells Fargo, they are reasonably capitalized. Um, I don't see them as being overgeared. And the market rating doesn't give that sort of discount between the capitalization and the balance sheet equity. If anything, most of your banks are standing at a premium. But the problem is that if you've got a balance sheet gearing, say, of 10 to 1, if you lose 10% of your um, of your assets, your loans, in the form of um, uh, you know bad debts or maybe rising interest rates um, undermining any bonds that you have on your uh, balance sheet, then as a bank you are bust. I mean that is the thing about gearing, and I think the counterparty risk from a failing eurozone is likely to undermine the global banking system, because. You know, we are we are at the worst possible moment for this to happen. Yeah, well, we uh, we have just about a, a minute left in this segment, Alistair. So, uh, for those listeners that maybe are not familiar with gold money, would you like to give a one minute and fifteen second commercial? Yes, of course. Thank you very much indeed. Gold money stores um, precious metals on behalf of its customers, and we offer a range of vaults around the world. So, typically. An American who uh, might be worried that um, uh, action would be taken against uh, anyone holding gold in America can store their gold in another jurisdiction. Um, it's not on our balance sheet. It is out of the banking system, and that is key because storing gold and silver with a bank, even in a safe deposit box in most jurisdictions, uh, gives you no protection at all. Um, so that's what we're there for. Um, and um, our business obviously is growing quite rapidly, which, I'm, which is hardly surprising in the current circumstances. Um, and, uh, you know, I would encourage anyone who wants to protect themselves against uh, the, 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 the increasing dangers uh, of financial crisis uh, should consider having some physical gold and silver um, stored in a place where they can access it. And, of course, you access it online. Um, or alternatively, do have some at home for a small change. Well, our time in this segment is up, but I will continue my conversation with Mr. Alistair McLeod, Head of Research at Gold Money, when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the Head of Research at Gold Money. 
Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, you can read Alistair's work. Uh, he is a prolific researcher and writer uh, at goldmoney.com. Just click on the research link uh, on the website. Uh, Alistair, uh, you wrote an article uh, a couple weeks ago uh, titled Keynesians Going All In. And uh, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar uh, with the term uh, Keynesians, it's a, uh, a school of economic thought, and you can uh, refine this further, as I'm sure you will very eloquently, uh, that was really put forth by John Maynard Keynes, who I believe uh, did a lot of his work in the 20s and 30s. And he just advocated that when private sector spending um, slows down, that the government needs to pick up the slack. And um, certainly... Uh, if you look at what's happened here over the past year, it appears that uh, that's what's happened. And now uh, here in the States, they're talking about another $1.9 trillion stimulus package. And then Janet Yellen said, we've got to go big. And, you know, I'm always reminded of the fact that John Maynard Keynes, I believe, in a, in a pamphlet that he wrote or a piece that he wrote back in 1923 said that, you know, you don't want to measure things in the long run because in the long run, we're all dead. So I've, I've always been a bit cynical and thought that he knew his own economic uh, policies wouldn't work. So can, can you comment and then talk a bit about uh, your article? Yes, of course. The, the um, referral, you're referring to his uh, statement in, the, um, in his tract on monetary reform, which was published uh, literally just at the time when the um, paper mark collapsed in Germany in 1923. Um, now, what Keynes did was um, he wrote a book uh, which was called The General Theory um, of Prices and Employment and goodness knows what. Now, in that, he, eventually, he, he essentially invented today's macroeconomics. Now, the reason that he did that, or the way, the way in which he did it, was by denying the validity of something called Say's Law. Now, Say's Law is very simple. I mean, he misstated it, but let's state it properly. Basically, what Say's Law says is that we work, we produce things in order to consume. And it's specialization, you know, the specialization of labor. Now, that is obviously true. But if you um, uh, accept that, then we go one step further, and that is that the role of money is to turn our production into our consumption. By that, what I mean is that we produce whatever we are uh, very good at producing in order to buy all those things that we don't make or produce. And that is obviously true. Now, it was that that Keynes denied. Now, the reason he had to deny it was that if you go along with the Say's law supposition, then there is no room for a government to intervene in the economy. In other words, um, you know, the, 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 the production sustains consumption and vice versa. Now, by um, uh, doing away with Say's law, what it meant was it gave an excuse for, for a government, the state, to intervene in the underlying economy. And Keynes recommended this uh, as a means of, as you uh, rightly put it, you know, when um, the private sector can't sustain itself, that's the time when government steps in and should uh, stimulate it. Now, putting extra money into the economy doesn't change anything because you're still producing to consume. But what it does do is it puts up prices. Now, what we've done, um, what we've done over the years is we've uh, modified uh, the, our understanding of the rise in prices by putting in various, um, uh, if you like, sort of counter, counter effects, like, uh, you know, if the price of, beef goes up, we switch to pork. Um, 
you know, if, if a car or a computer has got improvements, we reduce the price accordingly. So using all these methods, we suppress the evidence of price inflation, but it is still there. Now, another point which is missed in all this is that when the state prints money and when banks extend credit, they dilute the purchasing power of the existing money and credit. And in effect, there is a wealth transfer effect so that ordinary people find, because their money buys less, that their wealth has been transferred to the issuer of the money, which in the main is the state and the banks it licenses. So that is the other side of it. The idea that you can stimulate an economy by printing money um, is only valid if you look at one side of the equation. When you take into account the transfer of wealth out of the private sector that the print of printing of money uh, engenders, then the situation is that you are no better off. The private sector, the economy, is no better off as a result of the money printing. If anything, by varying uh, the purchasing power of the money, you create distortions which are counterproductive. So that, in a nutshell, is the basis of uh, modern macroeconomics and the falsity behind it. Now, originally, when Keynes uh, produced this sort of theory that the state could, uh, if you like, give the economy a boost when it was needed, um, the idea was that over the credit cycle or the business cycle or the trade cycle, um, you would try and retain some sort of balance on the budget so that you would start off with a budget deficit to stimulate the economy. And as the economy recovered and went better, your tax income would mean that the deficit would be replaced by uh, a surplus. So that over the cycle, the government uh, um, uh, spending balanced out. But that is no longer true. I mean, you've only got to look at the deficits that have accumulated in America for the last 20, 30 years to know that isn't true anymore. Furthermore, I think that... Um, you can, you can see that um, we're now getting into a hyperinflation, if you like, to try and stimulate the economy. You rightly referred to a 1.9 trillion boost, which is now uh, going through uh, uh, your Congress. And uh, in addition to that, there is intended to be a further boost um, because um, President Biden wants to emphasize and invest in green energy, infrastructure, whatever, whatever. So what these um, Keynesians, the supporters of Keynes, are now doing is they're now expanding the, um, uh, the production of money to an absolutely ridiculous extent. It has always failed in the past, and despite that, they're continuing to follow the policy. This, is, this will only undermine the currency, and I think that uh, we have reached the point where the undermining of the currency is going to be so acute that we'll be lucky if the dollar lasts out uh, through, uh, through 2021. Well, Alistair, that, that, that statement is alarming, and uh, I recently found a, uh, uh, some research done by, I believe it was the Cato Institute, and uh, they analyzed... Uh, 52 hyperinflations that have occurred since 1923. Uh, there's that year again. And one of the things that struck me was that hyperinflations from their official beginning until 
the end. They, they progress extremely quickly. Do you see this uh, progressing the same way? It's an interesting question because um, there are two ways in which this uh, happens. I mean, what we're talking about is uh, the loss of the purchasing power for a paper currency, a fiat currency, in this case, the dollar. Uh, the one way in which it happens is what happened in Germany between um, sort of 1919 and 1923. Now, in that case, you had uh, increasing production of money, um, and that was that undermined the purchasing power of the paper mark, and it got to the stage where uh, the undermining of the purchasing power of the mark was so rapid that people were having to take time off work when they got paid, and they were getting paid hourly rather than weekly or monthly, uh, in order to spend the money before it lost even more purchasing power. And that, that uh, situation happened uh, really in 1923, um, up until November, when the whole thing finally ended. The other um, way in which this can happen is, I think, the more likely um, way it's going to happen in America. If we go back to John Law, who was... Um, uh, a Scotsman who persuaded the prince, the, the prince regent in France in 1715-16, uh, running through to 1720, that he had a, uh, a way of paying off the king's debt. And what it amounted to was he, he gained control of the money supply, and he printed money to buy shares in his venture, the Mississippi venture, which needed to be, to be capitalized so that he could build ships and all the rest of it to transport goods to and fro uh, France from other nations. And it wasn't just uh, uh, the, the French colonies in North America. It was the whole of France's overseas trade. Now, the point was that printing money to uh, puff up assets is exactly what the Fed is doing. This is, this is the whole point of QE. QE is, I mean, initially anyway, it was targeted at putting money in the hands of uh, pension funds and insurance companies so that they would go out and buy other financial assets, particularly equities, uh, in order to create a wealth effect uh, amongst the people. Now, this is exactly what John Law was doing, and the whole thing collapsed in 1720, and the collapse when it came was actually uh, fairly um, rapid. I mean, it took a number of months, maybe about five or six months. And the interesting thing is that by September 1720, uh, the share price of the Mississippi venture had fallen from a high of around about 12,000 livres down to about 3,000 livres. But the livre itself had no quotation whatsoever on the foreign exchanges in London and Amsterdam. And interestingly, an economist who uh, became famous for other reasons, uh, Richard Cantillon, uh, he benefited from this. Uh, he made two fortunes out of it. The first fortune was lending money to people who wanted to buy shares in John Law's venture. He immediately sold the collateral without telling the uh, people who he'd lent money to. And he finally managed to retrieve the money as well as benefiting from the sale of the shares. But his second fortune, he decided the best way to play this was not to short, go short of um, the Mississippi venture, but to sell the livre, the French livre, the paper livre, on the London and Amsterdam exchanges, which he did in uh, enormous quantities. And, of course, it was the livre that went to zero 
the uh, uh, Mississippi Venture actually continued to trade despite that. It never actually went bust and was the basis of uh, the French interests in India uh, about a century later. So you can see that um, the situation that the Fed has put itself in is that it is puffing up assets, printing dollars to do so, and when the bubble bursts, which it is bound to do, and incidentally that will be rising interest rates, and we can already see the yield on the one-year, uh, sorry, the 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury is creeping up rather worryingly. Mm-hmm. When the interest rates rise, the bubble pops, and it will take the dollar with it. And I think it could be a very, very rapid thing. So we have two global problems. The one I described in the first segment of the potential bankruptcy, in fact, almost certain bankruptcy of uh, the Eurozone and uh, the ending of the Euro. And at the same time, we can see a different problem arising in America with a dollar being printed to create a wealth effect. And when that bubble uh, pops, obviously the dollar will similarly have um, uh, virtually no future. And I think it will probably wipe it out. So those two things, I think, uh, one needs to bear in mind when planning for the future. And I'm talking about the future. I'm talking about the very near future because I don't think it's going to take very long for this to go wrong. Well, the clock tells me, Alistair, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Whenever we start talking, uh, the two segments goes by way too quickly. We certainly appreciate you joining us and sharing your knowledge and research with the listeners, and we would love to have you back down the road. That would be my pleasure, Dennis. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Alistair McLeod for joining us on today's program. In the first segment of the program today, I talked about the fact that it was my belief that the United States reached the peak of the credit cycle last year. I talked about it on last week's program as well. And I arrive at this conclusion because the traditional purchasers of U.S. government debt, for the most part, just quit buying debt. Deficit spending last year by the U.S. government in 2020, and there was lots of deficit spending, that was funded largely through money creation. Now, I believe the only thing standing between the United States, or one of the main things standing between the U.S., and massive inflation is the dollar's role of reserve currency. See, many countries around the world continue to inventory U.S. dollars to use in international trade. But once the dollar is abandoned to a greater extent, all the reasons these countries have to inventory U.S. dollars may go away. When that happens, these dollars will migrate back to the U.S., and that's when inflation will likely begin in earnest. Now, there are signs the rest of the world is moving away from the U.S. dollar. Bill Campbell of Double Line Capital wrote a piece this past week that caught my attention, and I'm going to give you just a bit from that piece. A series of equal and opposite reactions are occurring as nations move to remove the role of the U.S. dollar at the center of global trade and finance. This will have a long-lasting structural impact in ending the dominance of the dollar as the world reserve currency. In November, that's just November of 2020, three months ago roughly, 15 Asian countries 
comprising 30% of global gross domestic product. So 15 Asian countries whose economic output really account for 30% of world economic output, so almost a third of the world's economy, signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which created a free trade zone among the 15 countries that were participating. Now, Mr. Campbell notes that the agreement attempts to provide gains to trading within the regional partnership through a reduction of trade and investment barriers. It is noteworthy that the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership came about without the participation of either the United States or Europe, and this Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership has effectively created the world's largest trading bloc. Now, beyond the obvious benefits for economic growth in the region, a more subtle byproduct of this agreement is to focus on bilateral settlement of trade, effectively removing the dollar as the standard unit of transaction for regional trade. I want to read that again. Beyond the obvious benefits for economic growth in the region, a more subtle byproduct of this agreement is to focus on bilateral settlement of trade, effectively removing the dollar as the standard unit of transaction for regional trade. So the writing is on the wall. I believe that moving ahead that we will see currencies evolve, maybe evolve quickly, as Mr. McLeod indicated today. And history teaches us that as the currency cycle progresses, eventually we get back to hard money as currency. When I say hard money, I mean precious metals like gold and silver. I think history teaches us beyond any doubt that Voltaire was right when he said that currencies always return to their intrinsic value. Fiat currencies have an intrinsic value of zero. Any paper currency not backed by hard assets, and digital currency for that matter, has an intrinsic value of zero or near zero. So there are massive changes taking place all around the world, both politically, economically, financially, and as it relates to currencies. Be sure to educate yourself. If you dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement, let me remind you, nobody cares as much about your money as you do. And to that end, if you're just joining us, let me remind you that you can now get the educational resources that we offer on the Your RLA app. Your RLA app, you can just go to the Apple Store, uh, Apple App Store, the Google App Store, and you can search Your RLA and the app is available there for free. It's quick and easy to download. Also, this month, if you would like to get a report that asks, are we at the end of the currency cycle, and understand some strategies that you might consider for your individual situation, all you need to do is go to requestyourreport.com and let us know where to mail that February report. We'd be very glad to get you a complimentary copy of it. It is... Uh, just published uh, all recent information, all uh, current references. 
So again, if you'd like to get a copy of that, go to requestyourreport.com. And as always, you can go to our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and you can get all of our educational resources there, including our weekly newsletter, including the weekly update webinar, and including our weekly podcast. That's all the time I have for this week's program. I hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. Have a good week.